Hello and welcome to this Bicom podcast. I'm Sam, the Research Associate at Bicom, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Anders Pearson, who is a senior lecturer at Linnaeus University and author of four books, the latest of which is titled EU Diplomacy and the Israeli-Arab Conflict, 1967 to 2019. The book has just been published by Edinburgh University Press and is the topic of our conversation today. Anders, thank you for giving us your time this morning. Thanks for having me. So I thought we we should start with the book. Uh, Your main argument is that the Israeli-Arab conflict has been more important for the EU than the other conflicts of the last 50 years. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, I I, I went through 80,000 pages of EU text between 1967 and 2019. And it is clear that the Israeli-Arab conflict has gotten so much more attention than other conflicts by the EU. So so in light of that, I sort of conclude that my uh, overall thesis for this book will be that this conflict has been more important for the EU than other conflicts. And that's because of sort of four reasons. And the first one is that this conflict was very central to the foundation of the EU's foreign policy. Uh, Right after the war in 1967, the EU did not have a foreign policy, but this conflict and the war of 1967 presented what was seen in the European Parliament by then as a marvelous opportunity for creating a common European foreign policy, which is exactly what happened. And this conflict became sort of the test case for the EU's emerging foreign policy. So that's the first reason. And the second is that uh, the EU's involvement in the conflict is, is based on major strategic factors like oil and trade and security. After the war in 67, the the EU of the time, and keep in mind this was only six members, Western Europe, but they depended for 80% of their oil consumption, around 50% of their total powers uh, on the Arab countries of the Middle East. So it was a major strategic incentive in in formulating good relations uh, with these countries. And after the next war in 1973, the oil problem became acute when the, when, the, when the price of oil went up 400%. And, and so the high oil prices led to massive transferings of wealth from the industrialized world, from Europe, America, and Asia to the oil producers in the Middle East. And that led to that trade went up a thousand percent in the 1970s between the EU and the Arab members of OPEC. So there you had another strategic objective and then came security and terrorism and other things, refugees later on. Uh, And the third argument is that this conflict, as I said, has had a unique uh, place in the EU's discourse all the way since the early 1970s. It is less prevalent today uh, and it has been for a couple of years now, but looking at this from an historic perspective over a 50 year period, there is no doubt that this conflict has gotten so so much more attention than other conflicts. And and the last argument why this conflict has been more important for the EU than others is that the EU is part of the conflict through its close economic and other bilateral relations with Israel and through its close support to the Palestinian Authority and other parts of the Palestinian society. Uh, So these are sort of the four arguments why this conflict has been more important for the EU than other conflicts. Oh, fantastic. Um, we'll get onto the EU's kind of current kind of policy um, later on, but 
one thing you, you mentioned in the book was you said that the, the 1980 Benin's Declaration uh, is one of the most important EU declarations ever on the conflict. What does the declaration say and why is it so important? Yeah, it is important because, because it came just after the period of detente of the Cold War. So the period of detente, which lasted during the 1970s, was a, was a period of cooler relations between the superpowers. That gave the EU much more room for maneuver. So in the 1970s, the EU came out with a lot of declarations uh, that legitimized the Palestinian narrative of the Israeli-Arab conflict. Uh, and that meant talking about the Palestinians first as refugees, then as Palestinians, then as a people with legal rights, with the right to a homeland, uh, and all of this. This sort of, this whole process culminated in 1980 with the Venice Declaration. Uh, and it was a declaration just like any other EU declaration, but it had two important things. It advocated Palestinian self-determination and talks with the PLO. And all of these things were anathema to the Israeli government and most of these issues were anathema to, to the American government at the time when this declaration was issued. So the EU got a lot of criticism, first by Israel and to a lesser extent also by the Americans. But as time went on, uh, many of the ideas that the EU first outlined were later adopted by the Americans and also by the Israelis and by the Palestinians and other Arabs for that matter as well. So this whole idea that the EU has been an important normative power is a big argument uh, of my book. We see the same thing, for example, before Oslo in the 1980s, uh, where the EU uh, legitimized the two sort of key concepts of Oslo, that was mutual recognition and land for peace. And, and uh, today we see, of course, that the land for peace formula has been replaced by peace for peace. But it was a very important EU declaration. It came also at a very optimistic time. This was just after the Camp David process, the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty. So it was an optimistic time which then ended with a new phase of the Cold War. The, uh, we had the, the Soviets invading Afghanistan, and a couple of years later, we had the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which sort of led the Israeli-Arab conflict into a new phase, uh, where the EU was extremely critical of Israel. So the 1980s, from the first Lebanon war to the first Intifada, is the period where the EU has been most, mostly critical of Israel, much, much more so than, than we see uh, today. You, um, you kind of explain in the book and you get a sense that it's impossible for, for one paradigm or theory to accurately account for the EU's kind of 50 long involvement in the, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, for the sake of brevity, kind of how would you describe the EU's involvement today, its current foreign policy? Well, right now, I, I would compare the EU's involvement to, to the Palestinian Authority. Mm -hmm. uh, these two cre uh, political creatures look very much like each other at the moment. They are weak and they are divided. They are unable to formulate a, a strategy for the future. Uh, they cannot uh, even, they cannot shape events anymore and they can barely react to things that are going on around them. For example, uh, the recent peace and normalization agreements with uh, the UAE and, and Bahrain. But sort of the broader point here would be that the EU is 
a unique political creature, the largest block of liberal democracy, this historic peace project. Uh, and it was expanding for a long time. And, and Israel was one of the sort of uh, keenest countries of, of joining, maybe not, you know, as a, as a full member, even if there has been discussion about that, but sort of joining projects like the research corporation and joining in Mediterranean strategies and, and, and these kind of things. One of the things which the EU does, which is, is unique, I suppose, to the EU, is that it has its differentiation policy. Can differentiation you, is, yeah, the, is, is a difficult word to, to pronounce. Can you just explain kind of what is the differentiation policy um, that the EU kind of imposes? Yeah, uh, differentiation is, is a term that comes from the thing, the Brussels-based think tank ECFR, European Council of Foreign Relations, and they, they put out a paper a couple of years ago where they sort of defined the term. Uh, and that it, it, it basically means measures taken to exclude Israeli settlement-linked activities or entities from bilateral relations between EU and member states and Israel. Uh, and this was this has been a big it has been a big issue uh, in in um, uh, in in eu israeli palestinian relations it actually goes back to the 1980s when the eu wanted to bolster uh, exports from the palestinian territories in the west bank and gaza and that sort of raised issues you know how should this product be marked and what kind of territory and whose territories and blah 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 uh, uh, the big thing is that then was when the EU in 2013 issued guidelines against the settlements. Uh, this became a bombshell in Israel and Netanyahu was quoted saying that his and Israel's failure to stop the EU from issuing these guidelines was his biggest setback uh, in his three decades uh, political career. So it was a very, very big thing. And other, a few other countries in Asia followed. We saw China and Korea. Uh, we saw uh, human rights organizations uh, also adopting uh, these measures. And some companies, we had a big fuss between Airbnb and Israel a couple of years ago. But this sort of whole, the whole issue of differentiation has sort of <laughs> fallen a little bit off the spotlight and, and, and especially now with these new uh, peace agreements. Mm. You mentioned the peace agreements, kind of what has been the EU's reaction to the peace agreements and between the UAE and Bahrain and are you surprised by its reaction and, and do you think it will change the EU's policy in, in any regard? Uh, no, I'm not really surprised. I think that the EU has I think it's fair to say that the EU has cautiously welcomed them. But to be honest, the EU belong to the sort of, to the group of countries that are standing on the sideline here, not really sure how to react. Because these peace agreements go, they go against the logic of, 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 uh, of these 50 years of EU's involvement, which means uh, it's called the inside out approach. Israeli-Palestinian peace first, Israeli-Arab uh, Israeli normalization later. And what Trump and Netanyahu has done is, of course, the exact opposite called the outside-in approach of Israeli-Arab normalization first, and then Israeli-Palestinian peace later. The fear, of course, in the EU is that there won't be any Israeli-Palestinian peace later on uh, in this process. So therefore, the EU is cautiously waiting on the side. And of course, first, uh, first they're looking at, at what will happen uh, in November in the American presidential elections. If Trump wins as, uh, a second term, I think the EU needs more clearly to, to formulate a strategy for all of this. And if Biden wins, then maybe there will be something else. Um, 
one of the things which, which you've written about is, is EU's policy on, on Hamas and, and Gaza. Um, Israel doesn't really have a strategy to deal with, with Hamas. It hasn't for since 2008. What is the EU stance on, on Gaza and, um, and kind of where does it sit between vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Hamas? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's a long story here. Uh, and I think that we need to see the EU, Hamas and Gaza relations very much within sort of the war on terrorism paradigm. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to keep in mind that the EU's vision of a two-state solution is based on a strong Palestinian authority without Hamas, rather than a weak Palestinian authority with a strong Hamas outside or inside or, or wherever. But of course, many people forget today that the EU's decision to place the political branch of Hamas on its terror list was taken on the very symbolic date of September 11, 2003, two years after the attacks. Uh, and that led to, to the isolation uh, of Gaza, the isolation of Hamas, uh, and it also, of course, how much it contributed to Hamas election victory, it's difficult to say, but everybody can of, see, can of course see that there is an ocean of discrepancy between placing uh, Hamas on a terror list as the EU did a couple of years before the Palestinians placed the same group in their government. Mm. Uh, but of course, the fact of the matter is that the European Union, and I, I think this is true for the whole of the Western world, we have difficult problems for dealing with both with political Islamists and even, of course, even more with militant Islamists. So this has, of course, contributed to this whole non-contact policy uh, with Hamas, which has resulted in, in three wars and thousands of dead um, in Gaza and, 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 and of the situation that we have today where Gaza is a problem without a solution. EU's vision, of course, is very sensible and, and, and very, I mean, <clears throat> most people would agree that the, uh, with it that uh, the solution here is, you know, <clears throat> lifting the blockade in return for demilitarization of Gaza. Uh, it doesn't seem to be happening. Mm -hmm. And, and so, uh, so the EU is stuck here, just like the rest of the actors uh, involved, while Gaza continues to deteriorate. Maybe kind of shifting to look at kind of Israel's policy to the EU. Um, Israel under Netanyahu for the last four or five years has spent much kind of diplomatic capital in trying to nullify the EU by kind of forming these new alliances with Central and Eastern European countries like Poland and Hungary, who sometimes share Israel's kind of scepticism of Brussels. What do you make of the kind of this Israeli tactic um, and how is it perceived in the EU and do you think it's working to reduce the EU's pressure on Israel? Yeah, I think it has been very successful from, from Israel and Netanyahu's point of view. And, and, and this strategy is truly Israel's own differentiation strategy in sort of trying to separate individual members from the big EU collective. And it has been very, very successful in weakening EU pressure on Israel. But I think, and, and looking closely at this, I think Israel is getting a little bit cautious that, uh, that it should not allying itself too closely with authoritarian regimes like the one in Hungary. And, and, and I think, uh, for example, last time Askenazi met, met uh, Orban, I think uh, you know, he tried to distance, distance himself uh, a, a little bit. And of course, the question that should be asked here to Israel is that will this alliance uh, be good for Israel's future democracy? And that, I think, is a, is a question that needs to be asked.
Mm. Do, do you think it, this could have any impact on on Israel's kind of economic relationship with with, with the EU? Like you said, they're trying to maybe nullify the diplomatic kind of stance and they want to try and improve economic relations. Do you think the two can be separated or do you think the EU will say actually you can't you can't have greater economic relations without having kind of greater diplomatic and kind of political kind of... Mm. Uh, well, I, I, I think that the EU, uh, I think that Israel has been very successful in, in, in trying to separate this. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and one example of this is that this, this, there's been a lot of talk of whether whether this uh, EU-Israel Association Council will be conveyed finally after many years of not being able to meet. Uh, and and if, they, if this meeting will take place, that will be a sign, of course, that Israel has been able to separate the, uh, the economic relations from the, the, the diplomatic. Mm. Um, do you think there's a point, going back to kind of the EU and its, kind of its place in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, do you think there's a point where you know, the EU, will, the EU are, I think, are still the kind of largest donors to the Palestinian Authority. Um, will there come a point where the EU will say, you know, enough is enough. Our funding to the Palestinians is not bringing either side to the negotiating table and it's going to stop its funding. It's going to give the Palestinian Authority to Israel. Um, and it will say, you know, you have to do it by yourselves. Uh, I'm, what I'm really saying is kind of what leverage does the EU kind of have in the conflict now? Um, particularly as kind of more Arab countries are beginning to kind of make peace with Israel and, and turning their backs to the Palestinians? Well, I mean, cutting the funding is very easy to say if you sit in a cafe in Stockholm or in London or, or anyone else or anywhere else. It's, more, it's, it's a very different story if you sit you know, in the West Bank or in Jerusalem or in Gaza or in, in, in the region. Uh, it's also important to, to keep in mind that a lot of people are saying this on both sides. So both pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian activists want to cut the funding. Uh, so it's often sort of the incumbents and, and the people who... who, who who are in office that wants to keep it going. Uh, because w when you sit in office, uh, you need to take responsibility for, for your actions. And, and also keep in mind that <clears throat> what we have seen in the Middle East over the past 20 years is the enormous costs of states uh, structures collapse in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya, in Yemen. So in light of all this, uh, when you know, this really comes down to show uh, what is the alternative to the Palestinian Authority and is it a good idea to sort of weakening the Palestinian Authority further. We know of course that the Israeli government doesn't want it at the end of the day, even if they may say so for various kinds of, of reasons. We see of course that Israel is reinforcing uh, these government structures even in Gaza, even if that means you know, helping Hamas with the money from Qatar uh, and elsewhere. So. Uh, it's difficult for me to see this relation uh, being fundamentally altered. And this is sort of what I mean when I say that the EU is part of the conflict. Mm. Perhaps we can finish on, on a more positive spin. Um, how has the EU's kind of 50 year involvement in the conflict contributed to the development of Israel? And where do you see the EU-Israeli relationship going in the, in the future? <laughs> That's a very good question, uh, and it's difficult to answer. And then I'm not a professional economist, but when I look in the, uh, in the material that I have gone through, uh, these uh, 80,000 pages of, of text, uh, it is very clear that EU officials sometimes describe their economic uh, agreements with Israel as unique contributions to the industrialization of Israel. This is in the 1970s and 80s. Difficult for me to say to what extent 
that was true. Uh, but Israel is basically in everything but the name uh, a member of the EU. In, in, it's, very, it's a very, very, very close partner uh, and it's part of, of many, many EU initiatives. Uh, and it's closer to the EU than what many Israelis uh, think uh, mm. and believe. But still, even if these relations are so extremely close, the political dialogue uh, is very tense. Uh, even if I would say right now, it's not that bad to be, it, it has been worse. Uh, but also, of course, <clears throat> there's sort of the bigger issue of sort of European Israeli relations, where sort of the European culture, European identity is extremely important, not for all Israelis, but for many, and especially for, at least for the old, uh, and even the present uh, elite in Israel. I mean, even the prime minister's family in Israel describe themselves as sort of being of European heritage and calling themselves European. Uh, and I also think that it's very, very important for Israel to be part of, say, European soccer uh, tournaments and the Eurovision uh, song competition. And, uh, and I mean, one only has to look at the departing flights from Ben Yuron airport to see the close connections between Israel uh, and Europe. Uh, how much does the EU want Israel to be involved in kind of like, so some of the research and scientific projects like Europe Horizon? Is it, it's obviously a beneficial for, for EU to have Israel involved in, in that as well, given its technology and um, startup kind of capacity. Yes, uh, absolutely. It, it, it is not a one-way street. Uh, absolutely not. And the EU benefits, uh, I, I think, tremendously from, from its relations with Israel. And also, I think, very much from sort of the secret security relations. It's difficult to measure the security cooperation, but I think that is, without a doubt, one of the most important uh, areas here. But keep in mind here that the EU's economy in nominal GDP, it's 50 times Israel's and over a thousand times the Palestinian Authority. So there is no doubt who is sort of the, the junior partners here and who is the, the, the big partner, even if that might not always seem like that when you look at the diplomatic uh, relations. And that is, of course, is one of the EU's big problems that it's not able to translate its economic power into political or diplomatic leverage. And um, that's really interesting, really, really interesting insights. I encourage everybody to go out and buy Anders' new book. Um, I think it came out in July, so it's in, it's in the shops now. It's a really fascinating read, and you get a lot of information, insights into the EU's um, historic kind of policies with the, with the conflict. So, um, Anders, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sam.